I think as an entrepreneur, the mental switch that occurred was the more work that I put in, I can continue to increase. And it's not just from a financial perspective, but now I can gain more time freedom. Hi, you're listening to Ready to Scale, the second season of That Really Happened. This season is focused on APS of real estate, asset, process, and strategy. Each guest on the show will reveal the assets they invest in and why they chose to do so. From multifamily to industrial, self-storage, mobile home parks, and more. Then, they'll uncover the processes, tools, and systems they've used to build multi-million dollar businesses. And finally, they'll uncover new, unique, and exciting strategies to invest in real estate. From co-working to buy and hold, fix and flips, co-living, and much, much more. Now let's get the show started. Hey guys, welcome to Ready to Scale. I'm Ellie Perlman, your host broadcasting from sunny California. When I'm not behind the mic, I buy multifamily properties with passive investors who partner with me on my deals. So Ready to Scale is our new second season here where we focus on the business side of real estate, namely three key concepts that I like to call APS of real estate, asset, process, and strategy. By listening in, you will learn valuable business principles to help your real estate business, whatever it may be, thrive and diversify. Don't forget to subscribe to the show. And if you really enjoy it, please take a minute to rate us. It means a lot to me and my team. Okay, so for the month of January, I'm giving away the guide to increasing your property income. The guide is built in three parts. So part one of the guide will discuss ways to directly increase income from tenants, meaning strategies you can implement directly to collect more money from your tenants. Part two of the guide will discuss indirect strategies to increase income, meaning ways to make the property more desirable so more tenants will want to live there and perhaps even pay higher rents than some other cheaper options. Part two discusses ways to increase income by implementing ideas that do not add any value to tenants, but still allow you to make extra money. You can find the guide at www.elliepearlman.com slash resources. All right, so today our guest is a self-proclaimed corporate dropout, Jimmy Murray. With a background originally as a finance analyst, Jimmy discovered the opportunities and freedom of real estate investing with small multifamily unit investments. Fast forward over the last 10 years, and he's now the co-founder of Lion Property Management Group, currently managing over 400 residential units. Jimmy and his partner Frank host a podcast called The Cashflow Kings and also provide educational events to teach others how to get involved with investing as well. Welcome to the show, Jimmy. Thanks for having me. I'm going to have to update my bio because we just made a really big move to hopefully gave me some more street cred, but we're up to 700 units under management now. Oh, wow. Okay. Really exciting stuff and more tenants, more headaches sometimes, right? So <laughs> yeah, really excited to be on the show. Thank you for having me. All right. Absolutely. So Jimmy, can you tell us a bit more about your background and how you started, you know, getting involved in real estate? Absolutely. So from a young age, I always wanted to invest in real estate. My dad was a union carpenter. He would never allow me to pick up any tools. He said, you know, go to school, pick up the books instead and get a better <laughs> job. But I always had an interest in a lot of the things that he did. 
I'd never really imagined that I would be where I'm at now, kind of so early on. I thought I'd have to spend more time in the corporate world. But when I got into corporate, I very quickly realized that it wasn't for me. So I started to I actually stumbled across biggerpockets.com at one point mm-hmm. when I was scrolling through CNBC. And that's what really lit the fire. And then met my first mentor, who was my realtor, who helped me close my first two house hacks. And I was just kind of lucky in the beginning. Bought my first house hack in 2013 in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. And the rest is history from there. Awesome. So when was that? So that was November of 2013. And I people mm-hmm. may drool when I say this, but I bought a four unit in Pawtucket for 140000 Those buildings wow. are trading for like $350,000 right now. And the rent roll on that on a monthly basis is just under $3,700. So the numbers are wow. really strong. But I think it goes to that age old saying of sometimes you need to be lucky to be good. Mm-hmm. I started fresh out of college and I really had no idea how good the real estate market was back then. Yeah, it's always a hindsight, right? You know, you kind of think you have an idea of wh- where we are in the cycle, but it's the picture is a lot clearer when you look back and say, oh, that was a great time to buy. I, I feel it. I feel it. And so and you said that you were a corporate dropout. What did you do exactly? And what made you kind of make the switch to real estate? Yeah. So I was studying for my chartered financial analyst exam. I always wanted to pick stocks or be a portfolio manager and have my own mutual fund essentially. But even the goal, like as I think back, was to make a ton of money on the finance side and then always roll into real estate for that passive income. I made a good amount of money in corporate, but not a ton, but it did set me up for financial success where I'm at now. But the biggest thing in terms of the day-to-day of what I did was I did a ton of work in Excel and leaned on the numbers and built the numbers and told the story. And that translates really well to what I do today in terms of valuing deals, to purchase, but as well as helping clients buy investment property. So looking at the current rent roll versus where we can take it or looking at some of the capital expenditure and valuing a deal to see if it's worthwhile for a client. Absolutely. Well, and I think, you know, a lot of people are, they're kind of quote unquote stuck in their W2 job and sometimes it's very lucrative and it's really hard to make that move. And I know that it's even if you, you know how much money you can make and you have a very defined roadmap, it's very hard to make that jump and to say, you know what, I'm going to give up this, you know, this check that I'm getting every two weeks, every four weeks and do things on my own. And it takes a little bit of courage and, you know, some self-convincing. And also, you know, you have to believe in yourself that you can actually do this. Otherwise, you're kind of risking a very stable income with something that potentially can make you a lot of money, but not necessarily, it's not something that is guaranteed and you don't know when, you know, how much and when you're going to make it. Can you talk a little bit before we get into the asset process and strategy, you know, part of the interview, can you talk a little bit about how you were able to make that mental switch? Yeah. So honestly, I caught a bad review. (laughs) So year in review, my manager did not let me get an award edgewise, even though I did really well. I don't know if they just didn't want to pay me the bonus that I thought I deserved, but it didn't work out. So I walked back to my cubicle, talked to my now real estate partner, Chris, and said, hey, we're going to launch a property management company. And he said, let's grab a beer first, which we did. (laughs) So I'm thankful for that. But the biggest mental switch was I didn't control my own destiny, right? In the sense of When I wake up every day, I mean, I don't like this morning I was in eviction court, right? So I don't control my own destiny in the sense that I can set up where I want to be all the time, but control my own destiny in the sense of 
I could put in a ton of hours in the corporate world, but it didn't mean that I was going to get that next promotion that much sooner, right? I think as an entrepreneur, the mental switch that occurred was the more work that I put in, I can continue to increase. And it's not just from a financial perspective, but now I can gain more time freedom, right? There's some essential things that you have to do every day, but you know maybe you don't have to wake up at 6 a.m., get to work for eight and, and tackle it first thing at eight in the morning. Maybe you can tackle it at 10 or 11 and get in that really great workout that you want to get in. So I would say it's not just controlling my own destiny to chase that financial freedom that I wanted, but also the time freedom. And that's what led to the switch to make the jump. Awesome. That's really awesome. And I can totally relate. All right. So let's start with, you know, the first part of our interview that talks about, you know, asset. That's the A in APS of real estate. So you're building your business. You have a, a property management. Can you tell us about the type of assets? You, I mean, your focus is on small multifamily properties and single family homes. Can you tell me, you know, why you chose to focus on that type of real estate? I mean, there's so many other asset classes. There's retail. And, you know, there's residential, there's retail, there's commercial, office. Why single family homes and and why small multifamily? Definitely. So after I bought my first house hack, I started wholesaling. And honestly, I'm like financial analyst by trade at that point. And I'm an extreme introvert. Like I really didn't like to talk to people. So it broke me out of my sales shell. But as I'm going through that process and we're going through the, the yellow letter marketing, I quickly realized I was really good at talking to tired landlords. And the the way that our market is set up in Rhode Island is that there are a lot of three to six unit buildings. So that's how I started to target some of those smaller landlords in order to chase the property management side of things. In the beginning, when we launched our company, just based on the stage of the cycle, we did have a lot of opportunity related to single family homes because rents had increased to a certain point where they covered the mortgages of those owners that had bought them maybe towards the top of the market. So the property wasn't worth as much as it was when they had bought it, but the rents had increased to a point where it could pay our management fees as well as cover the mortgage. So then the owners would kind of buy themselves some time. So they didn't have to take a huge hit when they sold the property. So we found a good opportunity there with owners of single family homes. Interesting. It sounds like it was very, you know, also specific to where you were in the cycle when you started to that specific market, which you basically said, you know, this is an opportunity. I'm just going to seize the opportunity. Well, that sounds awesome. What are the benefits of investing in single family homes and small multifamily properties over other asset classes from from your experience? Yeah. So in terms of, I guess, asset class, it allows you to start a little bit smaller, even though now I'm definitely of the mindset of more units is more protection. But more units is also a larger down payment. So it allows you to get started and see if it's something that you're interested in investing in. When I had gotten into the game, it was probably between like a forty dollars to $50,000 down payment to get into a three-family. And I think that's really where you can kind of test it out to see if it's something that you're interested in investing in. In worst case, you can sell it a year later or two years later if you're a retired landlord, or you can bring in a property manager to help you out. But I think that it's a good entry point for most folks. We find that a lot of our clients that we have the most successful relationships with are also like entrepreneurs or local folks that want to be able to see that asset. So I, I think that's really crucial for a lot of people. Putting your money in the stock market can be great, but you really can't drive by it every day to see what you own. So I think people value the fact that they can drive by that house that they bought or their three family and kind of check in on it that way. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's exactly how I feel. You know, in addition, you have, you know, when you buy a stock, you have zero impact on the valuation of the stock, you know, it's out of your, your control, it's outside of your control out, out of your hands, because there's management for that company, and they dictate, you know, the or the market forces dictate the valuation of, of that share. But if you buy a house, if you decide to renovate it, if you decide to bring maybe better tenants, cut costs, there's so many different ways how you can actually not only drive and see the house, which I love, but also have a direct impact on the valuation of your investment. There's like two ways to make money on on real estate, right? That I think happens more quickly than in the stock market. Because in the stock market, when you buy that stock, hopefully it's the arbitrage you're looking for in the sense of buying low and selling high. And then sometimes you get lucky with dividends, but not always. Whereas real estate, you buy that rental property, you get those monthly dividends. It's not like in the stock market where it might happen annually or mm-hmm. semi-annually, whatever it may yep. be. You're getting them monthly. And then on top of that, you have much more of an opportunity for capital appreciation. And I think that houses have much less of an opportunity to go completely to zero where a stock yep. could go to zero. Mm-hmm. And I'm very easily. I've lived through, I guess I was early 20s at this point, lived through the, the, the Great Recession where I watched my portfolio legitimately like half overnight. And that's scary where, you know, your rents are not ever going to half overnight. Now, the tenants may not pay and you have to go to eviction court, but the rent should always stay steady even during a recession. You may not see that upward momentum, but they should kind of hold tight. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, let's move to our second, you know, part and talk about strategy. So you mentioned house hacking. Can you share with our listeners what house hacking is and how it works? Yep. So house hacking is buying an income producing property and living in it and renting out the other units that you do not occupy. So the first property that I bought was a four unit property in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, like I talked about. And I lived in the smallest unit. And honestly, I had some tenants once I had stabilized the building and given this wasn't like the right tenant, but he was around my age and he was talking smack about how I was a cheap blank, 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 because I lived in the smallest unit. And I explained to him, I said, (laughs) no, you just, you really don't get it, but come check me out in a couple of years. I'm going to be in a much better spot. But essentially I lived in that smaller unit to generate more cash flow. So to gain folks perspective, my mortgage, when I bought that house, which included principal interest, taxes, and insurance was $1,040 a month. I had one unit rented when I moved in. She was paying 500 bucks a month, but we had to rework that lease because she had a utilities included. She had a really sweet deal. The two units above me were vacant. So I put in work on the weekends to get them up and running. I placed that first tenant on the second floor and he was paying 975 a month. So now I'm more than covered on that mortgage payment. Now I do have some utility costs and then I was spending some money to get the property up and running. But now it's starting to click. And then I placed that 10 on the third floor. And I was like, all right, let me try 995 this time. And I got the 995, right? So now I'm like well above and beyond my mortgage. And this is when it starts to click. Because house hacking is a really hot term now. But when I started, I honestly just got lucky. I had a good realtor that taught me cash flow. And then really got into it from there. Got it. Yeah, I think it's that's really interesting when you're basically you can say that you sometimes you can even live for free, in a sense, if you're pricing the units right. So that sounds really interesting. From your experience, Jimmy, what is the number one danger or, you know, 
downside to house hacking? Living with tenants. It's tough, <laughs> right? So I'm going to tell you, I mean, I wouldn't buy a property in a D neighborhood to live in. You probably want to get an A or a B or maybe like a high C neighborhood, depending on how comfortable you are. If you have a family, you definitely want to be more up that spectrum of an A or a B property. But the biggest pitfall is becoming too friendly with your tenants. At the mm. end of the day, you have to remember that this is a business. They sign a contract to pay you rent on the first of the month. If they have maintenance issues, so that's on you to take care of it. You need to treat it as a business. Even though you are living there and that is your home, you need to make sure that you hold them accountable and approach it as a business. And then that's what's going to set you up for success in the long run. Were you too friendly with, with a tenant and you felt that that was interfering with the business plan? My girlfriend was at one point. She had one oh. of the tenants. They were like oh. trading dinner. So if we had like extra food at night and they got home late, she mm. would like bring food up to them and then it would happen the other way around. And I immediately squashed that. I'm like, hey, listen, I know they're really nice. And honestly, we ended up having to evict that tenant, not for non-payment, but they had some other issues where they thought that they were the owners of the building. So we had to mm. quickly correct for that. But I think that that's another good segue into another point of when you hold your tenants accountable it is going to set you up for a higher level of success. Because if you're in that building and I had four tenants, right? The other two tenants are seeing that third tenant being a pain and not doing the right things. So if you don't hold that one tenant accountable and correct for that, the other tenants are going to fall into line. But if you correct that, that next tenant that you place, those other two tenants are going to remind that new tenant saying, hey, listen, Jim's going to take care of you, but he doesn't mess around. So you better be on your best behavior. So that's another kind of key pointer heading into house hacking. That's an excellent point. That's an excellent point. Well, I want to move to the third part of APS and talk about the process. So Jimmy, can you share with me and the listeners, how do you choose a house to hack? What makes a house a good house for house hacking? It's all about the numbers, right? So I joke that if you can add, subtract and divide, you can buy a multifamily property. It is that simple, right? So I think about the 50% rule, and I'm not sure how many folks are familiar with that, but legitimately you're taking your gross revenue, multiplying it by 50%, and then dividing it by your rate of return. So that's where it kind of that tongue-in-cheek statement comes from. But you got to look at the rents up front, and the rents always don't have to be great, but start there, look at where you can take the rents, and then start to back into your expenses. So look at what your debt coverage is going to be in terms of your mortgage payment. Look at expenses in terms of projects that you need to tackle or utilities that you have to pay. But it's all a numbers game. Honestly, my first house hack is still probably the ugliest building on Central Avenue in Pawtucket. It is hideous. It like the first floor, people think it's like, I've heard people say it's like a social club, but they just, it used to be a pharmacy. So rather than putting in larger windows, they kind mm. of, it's not the nicest, but it cash flows really well. So I'd say stay focused in terms of process, stay focused, stay tight on your numbers, develop a pro forma, and that's how you should make your decision. Interesting. And then, you know, in terms of your tenants, how do you attract them? How do you screen them? What's your process? Okay, now you have a house, you've, you know, you've purchased it, you've renovated the units or, you know, fixed whatever is needed to be fixed. Now the next stage is to bring tenants. So can you walk us through your process of bringing tenants to those houses? Absolutely. So number one, don't use Craigslist. I have <laughs> Do not. Okay. so many owners in the property management business. They're like, do you use Craigslist? And the answer is always no. 
you'll get a ton of people that sign up for show or call you about showings and they never show up. You'll get like one out of 20 that actually show up and they're going to tell you a story about how their dog died in the unit apartment right now in the next hour and they have a thousand and that is the last thousand dollars you're ever going to get. I recognize that was a very strong opinion, but <laughs> have not had success there. We are fortunate in the day and age that we live in that there is a ton of great technology online. So I know a lot of DIY landlords that use Cozy or you can use Zillow My Rental Manager and that is going to set up your marketing process to be highly successful. So if you take a couple of really great photos, write a killer listing description, put it up on either Cozy or Zillow My Rental Manager, it's going to go out to 40 plus rental websites. And if you're priced correctly, your phone is going to explode. And then from there, you can really have your pick of tenants and the type of application you accept. I would tell you, always take applications and always charge an application fee. An application fee shows you that the tenant is serious about renting that apartment from you. If they complain about the application fee, they're not that serious. With that application fee, take it and pay for a credit, eviction, and background check. If someone is nervous about that, tell them, hey, listen, this is for your security and the security of everyone else in this building. So now they have that level of comfort. So you're trying to attract the right tenants. We have a process uh, related to felonies in terms of what we accept or criminal history, no evictions in the last five years. And then we want the credit to typically be a 600 or above. Where we bend the rules a little bit on the 600 is if somebody has medical collections or they might be laid on student loans. We found that we've had some tenants who have been great tenants that might not have paid their student loans on time or had a medical issue that that's how they caught the collection. Things that we don't bend for a credit score below 600 would be like collections to utility providers, Comcast, mm -hmm. Verizon, those types of things. Because those are things that aren't necessities. Like if someone's sick, they're going to go to the hospital and hopefully get better. But some folks have tighter credit policies. The really big one that we use, because people always shop at the top of their price range, whether it's buying a car or moving into an apartment or buying a house, it's an old bank rule. And I know that FHA rules have really kind of gotten a lot less stringent lately, but there used to be an old bank rule called the 2836 rule. And that's what drives how we look at income. So as a landlord, from an income perspective, we want to make sure that the tenant grosses. So before tax income is three times whatever the rent is. So if the rent is $1,000 a month, we want to make sure that they gross 3000 so that we have that margin of safety because they are going to have to pay taxes. They've got to make a car payment, car insurance, to get to their job, groceries, Hulu, you name it, they're mm -hmm. gonna have to pay for it. So we found that that income being three times the rent amount gets us to where we need to be. Interesting, and that's three times their gross income or net income? Yep, so it's gross income. Gross income. Interesting. Yeah, I've, you know, this is something that we also implement, you know, with Lix properties. It's always three time, you know, income. And I've seen some properties where they've relaxed that rule and they're having, they're charging it's two and a half. And it's, they always have issues with delinquencies and tenants that are not paying, not on my properties, but I, I see the, you know, other properties. So that's when yeah. you can find them in eviction court and buy it for pennies on the dollar, right? Yeah. Hey, you're tired. <laughs> can I buy your property? Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so the thing that I always tell folks is that Warren Buffett, when he goes to purchase a stock, he has a set of rules that he follows. And the same thing should be true when you go to pick tenants. My showing agents in our property management business, they have a one pager. Hey, this is exactly how you screen a tenant, mm -hmm. follow the process every single time. Now, if you find that a part of that process is broken, you can tweak it, but you have to stay true to that process. And that's going to lead to success. 
I'm a huge believer in following rules and sticking to them because otherwise bad things happen. You you might be purchasing faster than you think, but you're going to have to deal with a lot of issues moving forward and regretting most of the times that you actually made the purchase. Well, thank you so much, Jimmy, for sharing, you know, that with us. We move to the lightning round questions. Are you ready? Absolutely. All right. So, Jimmy, what's your favorite hobby? My favorite hobby is watching Ohio State football, the Ohio State University, if you're a football fan. So mm-hmm. Saturdays when those games are on, I completely shut it down. Oh, nice. So you, I understand you don't work then. Try my best not to. It doesn't always work. <laughs> All right. What's the number one thing that people don't know about you? So number one thing they don't know about me is that at one point I played amateur league baseball. So I used to be a really good mm. baseball player. Now I'm just kind of washed up and play old man softball, as I call it, but <laughs> still have a lot of fun getting out there. Awesome. What do you wish you had known when you just started out? So I think the biggest thing is knowing that if you have a good deal, the money will follow. Mm. In the beginning, I was always concerned about having money, but if you have good credit and you have the right deal, it's going to happen. Awesome. What's your number one advice to a real estate investor who wants to scale their business? Continuously educate yourself and continuously network. Like when I sit down to network with folks, I always ask them, you know, is there a book that you've read recently or something or a podcast that you listened to that really helped you out? I think that there's a ton of value in building that network with other Mm like-minded investors to continue to further your ascent. Totally agree 100%. All right. Great, Jimmy. Thank you so much. So if our listeners want to reach out to you, where can they find you? Yep. The best way is to shoot me a DM on Instagram and you can follow me at the Cashflow Kings on Instagram. That's the handle. All right. Perfect. Thank you again, Jimmy. All right. Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.